Well, you may be saying, why are you here today? Well, today is our pastor swap day from the 435 network. And you may be asking yourself, well, what is the 435 network? I've heard a little bit about it from Todd, um, but I'm not sure what it is. Well, let me just say that we're a network of pastors that gather together every month and pray for one another, disciple, work on discipling one another and uh, just encouraging one one another as we are... um, Uh, working at our separate churches. And so uh, each one of us is speaking at a different place. Uh, Of course, I got the great straw this week where I get to preach three times, get up at 6 a.m. and be here really early. Jason Laxton, who's at First Family Albia, is at my church this morning at 10 o'clock. So he'll be there in one minute. He'll be starting that one and only service. So yes, I'm asking for sympathy today as I do three services and had to get up really early for Sunday morning. But hey, I am glad to be here, excited to be with you guys today. And I didn't get here by accident. I got here um, really through a um, rescue and recovery program. Like, what does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that I was in a place of brokenness in my life. Um, I'd been on staff for 20 plus years, different churches, and just gone through a lot. And um, had been on a staff at a church where I got really discouraged and hurt. And uh, I was at this place in my life where I just didn't know, God, can you use me anymore? God, do I matter anymore? Um, What's going on, God? And and what's amazing is we were visiting a, a whole bunch of churches, just kind of wandering, trying to figure out what God wanted me to do and my family to do. And we came to First Family Church, and I met this guy named Pastor Todd Stiles. And uh, he, he gave me the typical pastor line of, hey, sometime let's grab lunch together. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, I know what that means. Someday, maybe, right? You know, and uh, he goes, how about tomorrow? And I'm like, what? Oh, that? Like, you really want to have lunch with me? Yeah, okay. And so we had lunch, and, you know, he just got to hear my story and what I was going through and what was happening in my life. And and you know what was amazing is he, he just began to, to do something that I'm gonna challenge you today with. And that's this. You ever been in this place in your life when you were a young person where somebody believed in you? How many of you right now, you can picture a coach or a teacher or a family member, or maybe even a mom or dad who just really believed in you? Like when you doubted yourself, they believe you. How many have somebody like that in your life, have had somebody like that in your life, right? I, I can remember in fourth grade, Um, My mom started going into the hospital for depression in about, I think, second or third grade. And for nine years in a row, she was in and out of the hospital until she met Jesus. She reminded me yesterday, they celebrated 50 years of being married. And by the way, the only reason they're still married is because Jesus entered their story. Amen? Jesus makes a difference. He really does. Literally yesterday, she reminded me, she goes, you know, Steve, after I accepted Jesus as my Savior, I never went back into the hospital for depression again. Amen? Amen? Now, what I want you to hear about that story also is this, though. It doesn't mean she has defeated depression. She still struggles with it. She's battled it all these years. So I don't want you to think that Jesus just wiped it all the way out. What he did is he's walked with her in that journey. Isn't that awesome? But I can remember in fourth grade, I don't know if my teacher knew and got word that my mom had been in long stretches in the hospital. My dad worked long hours, and I'm the oldest of four kids. And I don't know what what she found out, but for whatever reason, she believed in me. Like she poured into me. She gave me extra things to do. She, she just encouraged me over and over again. And I'm telling you, it ignited a fire in me for school. Like before that, it was like, yeah, I was there for recess. Amen? Anybody like that, right? Some of your kids are like, that's what I'm there for. I'm there for recess. I want to be the king of recess, right? King of kickball, all that kind of fun stuff. And I can remember it changed for me. Like her encouragement changed the whole trajectory I became an A, pretty much straight A, A, B student 
all the rest of the way out. Why? Because Mr. Mrs. Rista believed in me. And that power of belief in me made such an impact in my life. And that's the story of, of me, my, my rescue and recovery in ministry. You see, Todd believed in me, and he reminded me that God believed in me, that God had a plan for me, that God was not done with me. And I want you to hear that today, because as we dive into the scripture today and the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, that's what the story is. The story is that there's a God who hasn't given up on you, no matter what has gone on in your life, no matter how broken you are. There's a God who wants to rescue you and start that recovery process. Amen? Amen? Yes. That's exciting. This summer I had a, a chance to go to camp. No, not senior citizen camp, okay? I know some of you are like, no, like high school camp. Yeah, I get to go hang out with high schoolers. And uh, so it was about a month ago and, and we're taking a bunch of uh, kids that are from different places. We're taking some inner city kids. We're taking some suburb, um, some small town kids. And we've got the biggest group we've ever taken. I think we took nearly 40 all together with leaders and kids. And we went to a camp in Ohio. And one of the kids that we were taking is a kid named Kada. Kada came to our church about four years ago or three and a half years ago. Um, he came to one of our, their family was driving by to go to some other church event, some church I don't even know if they preached the gospel, but they were not a part of a church yet, and they were driving by, saw our event that we were having, like a, a summer event, and stopped at it. And we loved on them so much that they stayed. They, they thought it was awesome. Now, Kata's an East Sider, and uh, Kata's dad has been in jail for long as he knows. He hasn't seen his dad. And so Kata can be a little rough. He, he's, uh, he's just grown up in that culture. He's going around, up around drugs and some of those things. And, and I know that some of that is just stereotyping because not everybody on the east side does that, but it doesn't matter if you live in the suburbs, right? There's, there's stereotypes that we all have, right? There, there's characteristics that we kind of throw out for, for uh, different people groups. And, you know, on the east side, they've got that reputation. In fact, they have their own fair night. How many of you knew that, right? Right, it's East Sider night. That's right, I go to East Sider night Fridays. Well, you are all probably afraid of it. No, you're not, but hey, I go, I hope you do too. And uh, they got their own fair night. That's how, how incredible it is. Um, but you know, he's passionate, he's in 10th grade. And uh, Kata, the week before camp, ran away from home. And I didn't know if he was gonna get back in time to go to camp. But I told his mom, I said, hey, listen, if he gets back, we want him to go. I want him to go to camp. He's never been. Man, he needs, a, or I, he hasn't been in a long time. He needs to get there. And so the night before he comes home and Kata goes with us to camp. And, uh, you know, the, the week's going great. He's having a lot of fun. He's playing sports. He was in the championship game of basketball. He's, he's a great athlete. He's doing all these things. But, but some kid came up to him and said something to him, pushed one of his buttons and disrespected him. Well, the one thing you don't want to do with an East Sider is you don't want to disrespect him. It just is. And he felt disrespected. And so he fought back with both words and, and uh, got in a little altercation. And I'm telling you, it changed everything. It changed everything. Suddenly, this kid that was having a blast, having an amazing time, suddenly was like angry, not wanting to listen to me. And I just was like, hey, man. Because then he started pushing kids in our own group. He started getting kind of edgy, and you know, I'm not gonna listen to anybody. His head was down. He's not gonna talk to anybody. And it culminated with, uh, we were going to chapel. I think it was the second to last night. And uh, 
I'm sitting in chapel, I'm watching him because his head's down. He will not engage. He will not participate. He's decided, I'm done with this. I, get, I see him stand up and walk out. Well, of course, I can't just let him walk out of the service, walk out by himself into this camp in the middle of nowhere, Ohio. So I follow him out, and he goes to a gazebo, and he's on the phone with his mom, and finally he gets done talking with her. Not done talking. She's still talking. He puts the phone down, slides it across, says, I'm done talking to her. I don't want to hear her anymore. And I'm just like, man, Kata, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to engage with this kid? I didn't grow up inner city. I didn't grow up around drugs. I didn't grow up. I did grow up without my dad. He, I only met him once in my life. I can relate on that level. But I'm like, how in the world am I going to connect with this kid? And, and plus, there's probably a 10 or 15 year difference in our age, you know, somewhere around there. So <laughs> that should not be the biggest laugh of my sermon. It's a few years difference, you know, 10, 15 plus. But anyway, I'm like, I literally, I was going, God, I don't know what to do. How am I going to connect with him? So I just began to say to him, why are you so angry? And he's just like, man, this is who I am. I'm an East Sider. I'm a thug. I don't understand why you care. I go, man, I told him, I said, listen, because I want to do your wedding, not your funeral. He's like, why do you care? I don't care. I could care less, man. I'm going to be in jail. This is just who I am. I'm going to be an East Sider, and I don't want this Christian stuff. I'm not a Christian, and I don't want it. I don't know if you've ever heard those kind of powerful words, but man, I was taken back. I'm like, what do I say to this kid? And you know, I'm like praying and I'm like, I don't know what else to say. I just said this. I just said, hey, I just want you to know this, Kata. I, I love you. I love you and I believe God has a plan for your life. That's better than what this is, this is. That's what I believe. I believe God's got a plan that's better for you and I, I just want you to love you. And I actually said to him, I said, hey, listen, man, I'm not gonna require you. I'm gonna respect you enough. If you'll promise to stay right here, I'm not gonna have you come back into the service. You don't have to go back in. You can stay out here. I'm gonna go back in. You stay out here. And so I walked over to him and I just said, hey, man, I just want you to know I love you. And you wouldn't believe it. You know what he did? He stood up. No, he stood up. stood up and gave me a hug and he said I love you love you love you <laughs> first service was some visitor dude that I had never he probably is never coming back here ever again Dale I know you so <laughs> he said I love you it's not the end of the story so I go back in the service right and I'm assuming that he's just service ends so I'm walking out you know who I see walking out of the service Kata He'd gone back in. So I had to talk with all the leaders and said, hey, man, I want you to really watch him. He's volatile. I still think that I don't know what he can do. I don't know. He's, he's not opposed to fighting or punching people. He's already pushed our, one, a couple of our kids. I, I, I mean, you got a day and a half left with him. You just got to get him home. So I left to go to a, um, a wedding out in Jersey. I left camp. A day early, left, went out there. When I got home, I heard a story that I didn't know. His mom said, did you, did you hear what Kata, what happened to Kata? And I said, no. What happened? He said, he called me. And he said, um, God says he has a better plan for my life. And I've got to start living better. I've got to change. 
I got to do something different. The power of somebody believing in you, in your brokenness. It's amazing. I want you to turn to John chapter 4. We're going we're gonna to see a story of that same thing, rescue and recovery. You say, I don't know, man. Do I need to be rescued? Yeah, every one of us needs to be rescued from our sin, amen? I mean, all of you were born into sin, and all of you needed to be rescued from sin. And then comes that recovery process. And it doesn't matter what age or stage of life you're in. There's times where you're broken, and you just need that rescued from the Lord. And so this morning, I just want to briefly walk us through that story because it's a story that is very relatable. It's a story of Jesus reaching into a life and living life on mission. You see, Jesus had a mission in life. He said in Luke 19, 10, I came to seek and save that which was what? That which was lost. That's what was broken. He said, I came to fix it. I came to heal that. He was very intentional and living out that mission. And what we're going to find is a story about him and a Samaritan woman. We're going to find a story of someone who is very broken and very much in need of healing. And we're going to find out that Jesus enters into that story, not by accident, not by chance, but by a divine appointment, that he was living life on mission. He was, he was believing in this woman when she had given up and didn't even believe anymore in herself. Let's pick it up in John chapter four. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. Verse four, he had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. I want you to underline that word, had. He actually didn't have to. Culture says that many of the Jews didn't like Samaritans so much that they avoided it. That they were like, hey man, I'm not gonna go. It was the most direct route to where Jesus was headed, but it wasn't the route that every Jew took because a lot of them didn't even wanna be around. Anybody ever been detoured or said, hey, don't go to this certain part of town, right? Because it's bad news. Maybe that's been the east side for you before. Hey, don't go to the east side. Don't go to Fahrenheit on the east side, man. Who knows what's gonna happen? Right? I used to drive through Kansas City on the way to Springfield, Missouri. Uh, the Bible college I went to was there. My uncle was uh, going to Bible college. We were going through there a lot. And they used to always say, hey, man, don't drive down 71. I remember my parents, don't get in the inner city of Kansas City. It's really a scary, dangerous place. Like, we get those stereotypes, right? And that's, that's kind of what this is. So the Samaritans had this stereotype, half-breeds, right? And so, listen, they didn't want to. They, didn't look, they looked down upon them. So many Jews could have just walked over the Jordan up the, to the north and back over across the Jordan and just avoided that area a little longer, but they didn't want to deal with it. But Jesus, it says, had to. You say, why did he have to? Because Jesus had an appointment. He was, he was doing what God had asked him to do, living life on mission, and he knew that he had to meet this woman at this well at this exact time. And that's the thing about Jesus is he's never late. He's always on time, and he knows exactly what you need. He hasn't abandoned you. So he was at Jacob's, verse six. Jacob well was there and Jesus worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, it was about noon. I do love this about the Bible, it's real and raw. Like Jesus was what? He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man without sin. I mean, he got tired, he got worn out. 
But I don't know about you, when I get worn out, I, I have a word I use called hangry when I have it, I'm worn out and I haven't really ate, and, right? I'm, I'm not in the mood to talk to people usually about Jesus at that time, right? Jesus, he's living life on mission at all times. He's never off task. And there he is again. So a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Remember what time it was, it was noon. She said, or, and Jesus said, give me a drink because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And you say, well, that's not a big deal. He's thirsty, he's tired. A woman comes to the well. One of the things that is hard sometimes is when we don't get to see into the scriptures or we don't get to experience or we can't remember what the society would have been like at that time. But here's the deal. A woman coming at noon most likely was a woman who was trying to avoid other people. If you notice, it was just him and her. There's no mention of anyone else there. Most women would have came together in a group to get water. She was coming there for a reason. She was coming there to avoid people. She was coming there maybe to avoid rejection, maybe avoid shame, maybe avoid some ridicule because she had sin in her life. And that sin was what defined her. And so she's at this place hoping not to and this guy talks to her. And see, you don't think a big deal of that, but in that culture, it was not uh, socially acceptable for a man to talk to a woman he didn't know outside. It wouldn't have been right for a Jewish rabbi to walk up. And in fact, they would have not even spoken to her. So Jesus is reaching outside of the social norms as well as he talks to a Samaritan, first of all, a half-breed, somebody who was marginalized by the Jewish society, and then a woman on top of it all. So we see that Jesus is willing to enter into these difficult spaces, these difficult places, that he's not afraid of the mess that you have in your life. He's not afraid of the sin that you may have or may carry. He understands your shame. He understands your fear. And he's still willing to meet you. You know, he didn't make a public spectacle of it. That's the other thing. He met her privately. I mean, it was out in the open, but it was a private meeting. Not in a group where he's gonna disclose everything he knows about her. He does it privately. Listen to what he says. He says, give me a drink. How is it to you, she says, a Jew asked for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Hey man, you guys are too good for us. You guys are too good for us. You don't even associate with us. You don't even recognize us as real people. How are you asking me for a drink? Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Jesus was living life on mission. He was there for a greater purpose than actually getting a drink of water. Yes, he was physically thirsty, but he used the opportunity of a physical need and he turned it into a spiritual conversation. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that what, what is, is powerful many times is when we take a, a natural situation and we're able to spin it and include the spiritual in that? I was getting uh, donuts which is obvious that I love donuts. But I was getting donuts. I was up at Okaboji for a Warriors weekend with my son, something I've done with all of my boys and all four of my boys. And we were up there and I decided to go get some donuts at this place called Spud Nuts. Anybody been there up in Okaboji? Yeah, 45 minute wait for a donut, okay? Um, not sure it was worth that, 
But I'm waiting in line, and there's this guy behind me, African-American man, and he's behind me. And we just started carrying on, striking up a conversation, talking about how much we love donuts together. And he's like, yeah, I love donuts, man, everywhere I go. He's from Colorado. He's just visiting a girlfriend in, in Okoboji. And, and so the, he asked the, uh, the always intriguing question, what do you do for a living? And uh, I've been very creative. I've tell, told people I'm a heart surgeon. I told people that, you know, uh, I'm a, a counselor. I've, I've done everything. Uh, every once in a while, I have to just tell them, no, I'm a pastor. That's what I do. It includes all those other descriptions, but I'm a pastor. So I told him, I'm a pastor. He's like, oh man, I'm a PK. That was after he cussed about 35 times in front of me and uh, did it, you know, was talking about some other stuff that I was like inappropriate, but suddenly it changed, right? And you know what? We went on for the next 30 minutes and had a gospel conversation over donuts. Why? Because when you're living life on mission, you're recognizing that everything is an opportunity. Even with your neighbor that just wants to talk about your lawn, the guy or the girl in the cubicle next to you at work that just you know, wants to talk about how depressing their life is or their new boyfriend or girlfriend situation or, or whatever it may be or what's going on in our world right now, right? I mean, that's a topic of conversation. And, and it's a way for us to enter into the brokenness of our world because there's brokenness everywhere, right? Listen, in 45 minutes, that guy and I talked and he gave me a hug on the way out. Like, that's how it was. He's like, man, that's great. I told him what I was doing with my son. He's like, that's awesome. He's like, man, it was so great to meet you and see you. And he just hugged me like we'd been best friends. How's that happen? Because when you live life on mission, I'm not there for that. Dude, I'm just there for the donut, okay? I'm there for the donut. Get back to my son. It's just our father-son thing. I'm not there for you. But guess what? I am there for you when God is on mission with you, right? Amen? That's the way it should be. And that's the way it was here with Jesus. He's living life on mission. And he asked her a question. He says, if you knew the gift of God, who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Look what her response is. Sir, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> She's still focused on the, the external, right? The physical. That's all she can see. She's like, uh, just, just to let you know, you want to get a drink, you got to have a bucket. Okay, there wasn't walking up to a spigot. There was no like, you know, push the fountain, I know, kids, it's hard for you to understand that, but you actually had to pull the water up out of the ground. Yeah, I know. Some of you maybe looked that up on Google, okay? They actually had to labor to get there. They were thirstier after pulling the bucket up, you know? Had to keep getting it. But that's what they were. So she's focused on the physical again. You, you don't even have a bucket. So where do you get this living water? I'm sure she's like, yeah, living water, right. Like, that's not a term that you use. Where do you get it? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank it from himself. She recognized, she's like, hey man, and most of the Samaritans would live by the, by the first five books of, of the Old Testament, not the rest. And, and uh, she, she was aware of, this is Jacob, man. He's our father. He's one of our founding fathers. Like he's awesome. Like you're not like claiming like that you are got one up on him, are you? Like you're not, you're not claiming that you're as great as he is, right? So she has this, this question that he has of her. And Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. Makes sense. But whoever who drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Look at how Jesus has used the physical, the natural, and put his super on it to make it supernatural, right? 
Like he's flipped the script on her. He's like, I know we're talking about water here, lady. I know why you're here. You think you're here for water, but I'm here. I'm telling you, you're thirsty for something else. There's a brokenness in you that needs healing. And Jesus flips the script and is gonna speak that into her life. Verse 15, sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. You know what she's thinking about? The shame. I'm tired of coming here by myself. I'm tired of living life like I'm a reject. I'm tired of living ashamed. I'm tired of the weight of that guilt. I'm tired of it all. Man, and if you can give me something where I don't gotta come back to this point of pain, this point of hurt, man, I'm all in. Like, I want that. I no longer want to live in this pain anymore. I no longer want to live in this hurt and shame any longer. And Jesus said, well, have a good day. I hope that works out for you. End of the sermon, right? No. Is that the end of the story? No. So Jesus says, go call your husband. Now, wait a second. What does that have to do with water? He said, and come back here. Verse 17, what does she say? I don't have a husband. Jesus knew she didn't have a husband, of course. But he's speaking into her. He says, for you've had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you've said is true. Wow, powerful. Jesus knows that she didn't have a husband, knows that she had five already, that she's divorced and now she's living with a guy. And I'm sure that reputation is everywhere, that this is who she is. You know what I love about this story? Is this is a story about God's loving having no boundaries. It doesn't matter. God's love reaches beyond and breaks down any walls or barriers that there were between him and this woman. See, God's love has no boundaries, no limitation. He broke down the wall of division and hostility. He challenges the cultural norms. He crushes the barriers of race and gender, ethnicity, equality, and even religious tradition, all in one conversation. His love has no boundaries. And let me see, just tell you this, that he's about to explain that his gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ has no barriers, right? Like it can reach anyone. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, how bad things have been, how bad things are. There's a God who says, I believe in you. He reaches into your life like I did to Katie and he just says, I believe in you and I believe God has a better plan for you than the plan that you're living now the mess that you've created now. I've got something better for you. But see, he had to address and have her confess that, you know what, this is my life. This is where it begins, where she confesses that. You see, before that, there's a great scripture in Psalm 32, verses one through five, and here's what it says. It says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. 
When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Night and day, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me and all, say that with me, church, how much? All my guilt is gone. Amen? You see, God doesn't just kind of patch you up. God doesn't just kind of fix a little, a little bit of your brokenness and then say, well, I hope it works and I hope it sticks together. No, man, God makes you brand new. Amen? He fixes you completely and holy. And that's what this woman needed. She needed to get rid of the weight of this guilt, the sin that was crushing her. And Jesus comes in and he rescues her. He said, she says in verse 19, sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Be used, Jews say to the place the worship is in Jerusalem. You know, all of us are created to worship. Did you know that? Like God designed us to worship something. The important thing is what's the object of that worship? because it needs to be the person of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. Pleasure is not gonna get it done for you. The things of this world, there's nothing that's going to get it done for you. But we're created to worship. And she says to him, you know, our tradition says we're to worship here. The first five books of the Bible, we're, we're, we feel are right here. This is where we're supposed to, but you Jews worship over here in Jerusalem at the temple. And Jesus says to her, no, you don't get it. It's not about a place. It's about a person. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship with the God and the creator of you, the one who's going to, in just a short time, die for your sins so that you can have eternal life. It's about you realizing that I really am living water, that you will never thirst again, that you will never have to chase after the things of this world and think they will satisfy you. You will never again have to live in shame and regret and brokenness and failure, that God has restored you, that God has fixed you and made you whole. In fact, he just made you brand new. Amen? That is what God does. And that's what happens when we live on mission woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us in verse 25. He's like, I know, I know there's a Messiah. I've read about it, I know he's coming. When he does, he's gonna explain everything to us. And Jesus said some of the most powerful words you're ever gonna hear, because he didn't always just come out and reveal himself. But here's what he says. He basically says to her, I am. Now she's gonna recognize that because the first five books, who did God say he was? Who did God say he was when Moses said, who should I tell him is going to deliver my people? And what did they say? What did he say he was? I am sent you. And here Jesus says, I am. I am all you need. I am your deliverer. Man, I can take care of your brokenness in a way that you never experienced in your life. I am him. And I think this was the turning point. I think this is where it was a game changer for her. I think the light bulb went on. I think that right there in her heart, she changed. Here's what happens, verse 27. 
Just then the disciples arrived and were amazed that he was talking. Look at it again, amazed he's talking. He's breaking down barriers. He's crossing cultural lines. He says, they were amazed that he was talking to a woman. What do you want? They didn't want to ask him. The woman, verse 28, look at what happens. Why is the woman there? What was she there for? Girls, what was she there for? Water. And what did she leave without? Water. It says she left her pot there. Listen, you've traveled a long ways. You got this one pot, you're thirsty, it's hot, obviously. I'm not leaving without that. But she so was filled by the living water, which Jesus says he is, that she didn't even take back with her the physical water. Like her cup was full. She recognized that there was a Messiah that loved her, that believed in her, that had a plan for her that was good, and that she needed him. And so she goes and she says to her town people, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to them. And then the disciples did what they do and they went, hey man, aren't you hungry? <laughs> you know, Jesus, don't forget about the here and now. Don't forget about the physical. And he's like, let me just give you the lesson. The lesson is this. There's no one out of my reach. And there's no one gone so far away that I don't love them and want them to know me. For those of you who are older, you're gonna remember a group called Petra. Anybody remember that group? Yeah, that's old school right there. I'm going old school. Some of you are gonna have to Google it that are younger. Okay, when I became a Christian, instead of after I was listening to Ozzy Osbourne and some of the other stuff and, and Petra was like, Petra and Striper, man, to hell with the devil. And man, that became my, my jam for those years. And Petra had a song that one million miles away, but it was only one step back to God because you just had to turn around. And he was there. I don't know what you've been through today. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know this, there's a God who loves you. This woman goes back and the whole village practically comes back and they, they hear her story and they're like, wow, this is incredible, we believe. But then they go and talk to Jesus personally and it says even more believed. This woman in the course of a few days went from somebody who was just living life in shame and regret and pain and loneliness to a woman who had been changed by the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and now she was already a missionary, living life on mission. Man, winning an entire town, her entire town to Jesus within a few days. Isn't that awesome? Because see, that's what happens when you get excited about living on mission with God, when you see that that's his calling for you. So I wanna challenge you, are you living life on mission? I mean, are you really living life on mission? My son Jonah, let me end with this. This is how this works out. My son Jonah and I were, we had to go to a funeral of one of his best friends from since he was a young person. This person, Caleb, he'd uh, gone on mission trips to the DR with me. He'd gone everywhere. He'd been to every youth camp. And tragically in May, at age 24, he took his own life. And Jonah and some of his friends were sitting around at a table having dinner at a restaurant or lunch. And uh, the waitress came up and they said, hey, how are you? And good, how are you? Good, right? That's the typical good. 
I think they gave their order and she came back and one of the guys at the table said, well, the reason I ask you is because actually we're not doing that great. See, we all just had a great friend commit suicide and we're all really struggling bad. And the girl said, you know what? Somebody I know just committed suicide last week and I'm really struggling too. And they were able to talk to her about the gospel, the hope that's found only in Jesus Christ, the good news that he can rescue anybody. Why? Because they were living life on mission. Even going out to eat was living life on, life on mission. Even going to get some donuts was living life on mission. Talking to your neighbors, living life on mission. Is that you today? Let's bow in prayer. The end of the story is this, that Jesus says to them, the harvest is ready. Like, don't say that there's four more months, I've got time or whatever. He's like, right now, John 4, 35, Jesus said, the harvest is ready. Look to the fields, live life on mission. Be ready now to give the gospel. Because there's people that need it in their brokenness, in the brokenness of our world. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe it starts for you personally today. Maybe you're in that broken state. Maybe you're in that state where you need Jesus. You just, you've been living life. You've been doing life. You've been chasing things, but none of it has satisfied you. There's still a thirst in your heart and in your mind. And you today need to accept Jesus' living water. Jesus is the bread of your life. And today, you need to give him your life. You need to repent of your sins. Believe that he loves you in your brokenness, that he's reaching out to you in your brokenness, but that he can heal you completely. He wants to rescue you and start you on your road to recovery and a new life. Would you just pray that today, that just a simple prayer that says, God, I know I'm a sinner. My sin separates me from you. I'm broken. I'm bruised, I'm beaten down by this world, God. I need you. I believe you died and defeated death and hell and sin and rose three days later. And God, as best I can right now, I'm just giving you my life, Jesus. Be my living water. Quench the thirst that I have in my soul. How about the rest of you, church family? Have you been as committed to living life on mission? Have you been intentional with your neighbors and your coworkers and even your enemies? And letting them see that God loves them. God wants them to know him. God has a plan for them that is good. Have been living life on mission. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.